Well, in a moment, I'll read Genesis chapter 5 and the first eight verses of chapter 6. But first, let me just draw your attention to the very first phrase in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, this is the second toldot in Genesis. You remember that from our introductory sermon. That's the Hebrew word that is just this word, the generations of. Uh, this is what came of these generations. And the, remember that the first toldot was back in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. There are ten of these that form the structure of the book of Genesis. The next one is in chapter 6, verse 9, which reads, These are the generations of Noah. So this passage carries us from Adam to Noah. It's all one unified account. It all fits together, and that's important for us to understand. Because you may be wondering how. How a boring genealogy, a confusing story about angels and women uniting to produce Nephilim, whatever they are, and the intense revelation of God's regret about creating man in the first place all fit together. That's what we have to look forward to today. You hear that, and then you look at the sermon outline, and you see the sermon title, Things Just Keep Getting Worse, and you might be thinking, I don't want to know how these things fit together. And, and I will admit to you, this probably will not be the most often listened to sermon on our website. But I think you do want to know how these things fit together, because they do. And I think there's even encouragement for us in these difficult verses, because Genesis is really all about God. There are things in this passage for us to learn about God and to be encouraged by. So follow along as I read, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1 of Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 912 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. And after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, Enoch walked with God, 
and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shen, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of man came into the daughters, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Genesis 5, 1 through 6, 8 is literally about life and death. We read some distressing things, and we read a few hopeful things. In fact, it ends on a note of hope. But overall, things are getting worse. As soon as we hear Noah's name, we know what's coming. And we need to prepare ourselves for it. This passage takes a downward trajectory. It goes from God created man to the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. That's a downward trajectory. It's like a roller coaster on the downhill picking up speed, which means we should be hoping someone has their hand on the brake. If you want to follow along on the sermon outline, the theme is this, because of man, sin increases and death reigns in the world. Still, God offers hope for eternal life and grace for relief from sin by faith in his promise of the Savior to come, Jesus Christ. Verses 1 to 2 are very important. Moses reminds us that God created mankind, male and female, in his own likeness, because the question arises, does that still hold? After the fall into sin, do the children born to Adam and Eve still bear the likeness of God? And the answer is yes. In verse 2, God named all men, and all women, man. That Hebrew word is Adam. It's not Adam, the one man, the proper name, but it's, it's Adam and Eve are called Adam, or mankind. God created one race, the race of mankind, and all mankind bears the image of their creator, which means that all of God's creation ordinances still apply to all of mankind, believers and unbelievers. That's important for us to understand. We're all blessed 
to bear the image of God even as sinners. But most importantly here, Seth still bears the image of God. But Seth bears another image as well, doesn't he? I think that Adam and Eve must have had other children because Cain was afraid of being killed by them, remember? But at age 130, Adam fathers Seth in his own likeness after his own image, like father, like son, we like to say. Which means that Seth also bears the stain of Adam's original sin. So does all mankind. So do we. We bear the image of God, but it is marred by the image of Adam. It is marred by our sin. And so we're, we're told two truths at one time. Think of it this way. When you have a child, that child is in the image of God. Rejoice. At the same time, that child bears your image. So he has his mother's eyes, and she has her father's nose, but that also means that your child somehow images your sin. They sin the same way you do. And why are we told this? We're told this because Jesus Christ is the one who restores the image of God in sinners. So that we would also have hope in Christ. So that we should place our complete faith in Jesus Christ who restores God's image in us. His knowledge, his righteousness, his holiness. This is the very thing that the gospel fixes in Christ. It restores image bearers. 1 Peter chapter 2 helps us here. Peter writes, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Christ, we become the building blocks of God's restored temple. The very thing that Adam and Eve were supposed to do, Christ is doing through his gospel so that we would proclaim the excellencies of God. This sinful, rebellious world is passing away, but the things of God and the peoples of God will never pass away. That's true in the New Testament and it's true in Genesis chapter 5. Genealogies are not boring because genealogies in the Bible have a purpose. You probably noticed that the genealogy of Cain in chapter 4 is meant to be contrasted with this genealogy of Seth in chapter 5. Cain's line is bad. Seth's line is good. Why? Because there's enmity between them. And the text paints a picture of each line in these broad strokes. Cain's line defies God's creation ordinances of marriage in the family. Evil Lamech, see there are two Lamechs, there's one in Cain's line and there's one in Seth's line, so I have to identify them. Evil Lamech takes two wives. Not because family means twice as much to him, I think it's because family means half as much to him. Cain's line is focused on worldly things, building cities to their names, reveling in the arts and developing new technologies. Now you might say that what we're witnessing is the development of civilization, and I would agree with you. In fact, I would add that Seth's line developed the same things. But it's Cain's line that's known for them. Cain's line ends with evil Lamech, 
who has set himself up as his own God, meeting out the most severe justice for the smallest slights against him. But what is Seth's line known for? Well, the last, the last sentence of chapter 4 tells us that Seth's line was known for calling upon the name of God. Unlike Cain's family line, Seth's family line remembers and lives like those created in the image of God. Do you know what this genealogy teaches us about God? It teaches us that God knows the names of his people. Let that sink in just for a second. God knows the names of his people. And he knows his people. And he watches over them. Ten names, and perhaps select names, there may have been others in there that didn't get recorded, are written in Scripture. We may know nothing about them, but God knows everything about them. They were families bearing the image of God and the worship of God. They prayed for one another and admonished one another and raised children and helped one another to persevere in staying the course as worshipers of God. That's what the church is. The family of God, knowing one another and helping one another to worship God. And every one of God's children have their names written somewhere. Do you know where? In the Lamb's Book of Life. God knows you. He remembers you. Your name is written in his book of life. Trust in Christ and you will find your name written in the book of life. There's a repeated pattern here, isn't there? Each man lived a number of years, then had a son who would carry on the line, then had other sons and daughters. He lived his life one day at a time, and then at a very old age he died. We're reminded in this genealogy that God has a holy and a just standard, that he's a holy God. God won't let us forget that. If you forget that, you'll bump into it sooner or later. The wages of sin is death. And it's because of man's sin that death reigns in this world. Did you notice how death reigns in this world? Yes, life continues in the image of God, but death reigns in the likeness of Adam. So Adam died. Seth died. Enosh died. Kenan died. Mahalalel died. Jared died. And, and then there's a break in the pattern, which is meant to get our attention, and it does. Look at verse 21 again. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You know, significantly, if, if we're in comparison of the two lines, Cain and Seth, Enoch is in the seventh position, the seventh generation of descendants, which places him opposite of evil Lamech. That's a contrast in lines. Cain's genealogy will end there, implying that evil Lamech signified the complete evil of Cain's line. Enoch represents something entirely different. We're told that each man in Seth's line lived. We're told that twice Enoch walked with God. It seems that Enoch did more than just live. For Enoch, the phrase walked with God is in the place of the phrase, and he lived. And the phrase walked with God is in the place of, and he died. 
which tells us that Enoch did more than just live, and Enoch did more than just die. He walked with God where those, where those descriptors are. If you do the math, at that time, there's only one man in the line of Seth who's died of natural causes. It's Adam. So everybody on this page in Enoch's family took notice of Enoch's absence. I don't think that Enoch just failed to come home for dinner one day and they didn't know how else to explain it. I think they knew that God took Enoch. God swept Enoch away. Maybe the way he did Elijah, going off into the sky. But what does it mean that Enoch walked with God? Well, our first thought is probably that Enoch must have, must have been a very godly man. And I think Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 back that up. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 5 and 6. And here in the New Testament, we'll read about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because it was God who had taken him. Now, before he was taken, while he walked, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, Enoch walked with God, how? By faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, wait, Scott. <laughs> Jesus' name doesn't appear in Genesis, but that's who his faith is in. His faith is in the seed of the woman. His faith is in the serpent crusher, who is Jesus Christ. Always was, from Genesis chapter 3, always will be. By faith, Enoch walked day by day with God and pleased God. Yeah, think about that for a minute. We're always impressed by the years. But the Bible says, he lived his days, this total number of years. So Enoch walked with God day after day. After day, after day, just like you and me, for 365 years. And he pleased God. And how does one draw near to God to please him in this life the way Enoch did? Well, two things. Two things that are, that are kind of one. Enoch believed that God existed and that God would reward him if he sought him. These, these things work really well together. If, if there is a God who you believe really exists, you should seek after him. If you're truly seeking after God, you will find the God who truly exists. Enoch proved that he really believed that God existed by really pursuing God. Enoch wasn't perfect. But he walked with God by forsaking the world and worldly things. He walked with God by pursuing holiness without which no man will see the Lord. And when he sinned, Enoch repented. Kept walking with God. Now here's how, here's how Enoch was probably different from us. Instead of just trying harder to be righteous, because we get that way, don't we? How can I be righteous? How can I please you? I'm going to try harder. What Enoch does is he, he presses into God. He seeks the person of God, the presence of God by faith. Often we need to address our sin, especially repeated sin, by trying harder. 
because we give up too easily and too quickly. But we always need to address our sin, especially our repeated sin, and our pursuit of righteousness by pressing into God as He truly is there. We would say in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way. Enoch wasn't overly caught up in his personal sanctification. Enoch was caught up in seeking God. Believing he would be rewarded by the actual presence of God. Who is really there? And he was, wasn't he? That was his exact reward. God took him to be with him. No death for you. Come be with me. But that's not all that Enoch did to walk with God. The wicked world in which Enoch lived needed to be told about God. Would you say the same thing about your world? The wicked world in which Enoch lived needed to be told about God, and that's what Enoch did also. Turn to Jude. If you're in Hebrews, you're over just a little bit to the right. Find Jude. Find verses 14, 15, and 16. Speaking of a wicked generation that has rebelled against God, Jude uses Enoch as an example of a gospel proclaimer, beginning in verse 14. About, it was about these also that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then Jude goes on to describe them as the grumblers and the malcontents and those following the sinful desires of the flesh and their, their loudmouthed boasters and showing favoritism to gain advantage. How did Jude get all of that out of Genesis? He didn't. It was given to him by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament to explain the Old Testament. Not only did Enoch serve God out of his personal holiness, but he served God as a gospel proclaimer, as a prophet. Enoch was a prophet who told sinners in his generation how God would have them live. He believed God and he told people what God said. Enoch preached about their sin and their ungodliness. And he made, he made three points. If you follow those verses here in Jude, he made three points. First he said, God is coming. There's a good opener. God is coming. The God who is, the God who actually exists, is coming. The seed of the serpent's coming, or the seed of the woman is coming to crush the head of the serpent. He's coming to execute judgment and to convict the ungodly of their ungodliness. Enoch's personal holiness alone will not convict ungodly sinners of their sin. But the preaching of God's word will. Enoch walked among this generation as God walked among Adam and Eve in the garden, asking them, what have you done? What have you done? He preached the just judgment of God on the con for the conviction of sin. That's what he's doing. See, the world needs more than our godly example. Yes, pursue godliness, but the world needs more than our godly example. They need the word of God that alone convicts the ungodly of their ungodly deeds done in ungodly ways, beginning with the ungodly things that they have spoken against God and his Christ. 
Don't you love Jews' redundancy? I think he's trying to make a point. I'm not just talking about your civil and social behavior. I'm saying you're ungodly. And the judge is coming. And the worst thing you've done is you've spoken ungodly things against God himself. You need to know that. You see, that too is how Enoch walked with God. And God took him. God took Enoch about halfway between, halfway between Adam and the flood. God took Enoch. When, when God transposed Enoch to eternal life, don't you think? Don't you think that at least a few ungodly people repented and believed in who God is? <laughs> there, goes that, there goes that preacher Enoch. Whoa! I think God is. And is rewarded Enoch. Enoch is a picture of hope for everyone in his wicked generation. And for us. He's a picture of the gospel promise to be restored to God's presence. When the flood of God's judgment came, Enoch, who walked with God, was with God. What a picture of hope in the gospel Enoch is. Enoch proves that there is more to life than just life. There is more to life than just death because there is God. You probably notice that Seth's genealogy extends beyond, beyond Cain's. It goes to the 10th generation. Go back to verses 28 to 30 in Genesis chapter 5. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. See, good Lamech has a son and names him Noah. And Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He, Noah also walked with God like Enoch. So Seth's family line is the people made in the image of God who walk in the image of God. They worship God. And they're known as the people of God. The scripture is following the line of the seed of the woman. Scripture follows the line of the seed of the woman all the way to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and into Revelation. It's the gospel line. Now, there's a little word association going on here because the name, Noah, uh, the name Noah that Lamech gives to Noah sounds like the word translated relief in Hebrew. Good Lamech remembers God's curse, right? And, and God's promise that, that there's faith, that there's hope in Noah that will be one who will come and bring comfort to sinners. He remembers the curse of the ground, and he says, maybe out of the ground, because I believe by faith that God will do it, maybe my hope is in this one. He's coming to bring relief. He hopes Noah will reverse the curse and restore sinners to God. And of course, Noah has three sons, and this is another break in the pattern. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. See, Noah is a seed of hope, like Enoch who points us to Jesus. We don't know a lot about him right now, but, but he's pointing us to Jesus already in his name. But you see, things have not been getting better as we've been reading. They've been getting worse. Even in the line of Seth, 
things are getting worse. In verses 5 through 8, God announces his coming judgment on sin. So, in verses 1 to 4, just before that, they describe or they paint a picture of how bad sin has gotten, such that God has decided to erase mankind from the face of the earth. It's gotten pretty bad. It's important to keep that purpose in mind as we try to make sense of these very difficult verses. Look again at chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My flesh shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, I am absolutely convinced that Moses was perfectly clear in his writing, verses 1 to 4. And I'm absolutely convinced that his audience understood exactly what Moses intended to communicate to them. Remember, his original audience is uh, Genesis is in the Pentateuch, five books. Moses writes them, gives them to the children of Israel, who are the second wilderness generation, just before they cross over into the Jordan River to fight giants and take possession of the land that God has promised to them. It's just not clear to us. <laughs> these, these are some of the most difficult verses in Scripture in terms of translation and therefore in terms of uh, interpretation. So, so there are many different interpretations. You've probably heard lots of different interpretations. Whatever you do, don't go on YouTube and try to you know, type interpretations of Nephilim. You just, you just get messed up. It'll just get worse. We don't have time to go through all of them, so I'm going to tell you which interpretation I want to be right and which interpretation I think is actually right. And then, and then you can ask all of your questions after the service. We'll have a nice stump the chump session after the service today. I'll hang around as long as you'd like for me to. Here's the flow. Here's what's happening in verses 1 to 4. In verses 1 and 2, the extent and the intensity of man's sin upon the earth is evidenced. That's what's happening. That's what we need to look for in those verses. In verse 3, God responds to the extent and intensity of man's sin upon the earth by limiting man and thereby his sin upon the earth. So there's this great sin that's being evidenced, and then there's God's response to them. And then in chapter 4, the Nephilim are present. That's the flow. That's the, those are the three things we need to find. And it involves answering two big questions. Here are the questions that we need to answer. One, who are these sons of God? And two, what did they do that was so wrong? Now, after reading the genealogy of Cain and comparing it to the genealogy of Seth... It makes sense that the sons of God equals the line of Seth. And what they did wrong is to marry the daughters of the line of Cain. Not because of their inward godliness, but because of their lust towards their beauty. That wording is the exact same wording used of Adam and Eve when they ate the forbidden fruit in the garden. These men saw, remember, they saw that they were attractive, and they took. That's what Adam and Eve did with the fruit. 
These sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children. By the way, that's crass wording that reveals their crass motivation for marrying. It's crass compared to the wording of Adam knowing Eve. That's the wording that we should be reading about marriage. And as a result of these unholy marriages and their offspring, the sinfulness of man multiplied and the world grew increasingly corrupt, which provokes God to intervene and limit man's growing sin. He says, my spirit will not abide with man forever, for he's flesh, sinful flesh, and his days are going to be limited to 120 years. That's the version I want to be right. It fits the context so well. And it serves the purpose so clearly. But there's additional evidence for us in the New Testament. And if you want to study this in detail, I recommend Dr. Peter Gentry. Dr. Peter Gentry, formerly of Southern Seminary. He points out that this phrase, the sons of God, appears four or five times in the Old Testament, always referring to angelic beings. Then there are two passages in the New Testament that refer directly back to this event in Genesis chapter 6. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter refers to these sons of God as angels, whom God has held under just judgment for their unrighteousness. And Jude refers to them as the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal uh, chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. So the adjustment that I'm forced to make is that the sons of God are actually fallen angels who took the daughters of men as their wives. Well, what does that do to the sons of the sins of mankind that, that provoke God? It's the flesh that provokes God to judgment. And as I said before, this is evidence as to how corrupt man had become. I don't think that these fallen angels were the beginning of the corruption of marriage among men. I think it's the final exclamation point on the corruption of man on earth, and marriage in particular. What's under attack here in God's creation ordinances is marriage. We see the corruption of marriage in multiple wives and in crass motives for what is supposed to be a one-flesh commitment between a man and a woman. Man was living in defiance of God. Marriage was not what God intended it to be, and consequently life was not as God intended it to be. And man increased and filled the earth, so sin increased and filled the earth. And so God stepped in. He points to his coming judgment because he will not abide with man's sinful flesh. I don't think he's putting in place a new limit on the lifespan of people. 120 years instead of 90 years, 900 years. I don't think that's what he's doing. Because no man is going to live another 120 years. Noah begins building the ark at age 500. It rains at age 600. It's going to take Noah 100 years to build the ark. God is saying that he is limiting mankind to another 120 years when he brings the flood of judgment upon the earth. What about the Nephilim? Probably lots, of, probably lots of thin paperback books out there about the Nephilim. Are they the offspring of angels and the daughters of men? No. The Nephilim are just a footnote. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and after. The Nephilim are just a comment, a point of reference. Moses is telling his audience that when all this was taking place with the angels, oh, the Nephilim were already there. They were already present, and they were still present afterwards. But they have no part in the angel story. The Nephilim are the same as the mighty men of old, the men of renown. That's, that's what we're told. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. What days? Well, you know, when the, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. Well, who are these Nephilim? Well, these, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. It's a footnote. It's a commentary. The Nephilim are not a super race. They're not a racial category. They're a social category. They were the men whose names you would recognize. Men of renown. They were mighty and they were powerful. Perhaps warriors or kings. Were any of them giants? Sure. Some of them were really, really big guys. But they were regular, sinful men. They were not evil because they were born of angels, because they weren't born of angels. And they possess no, possess no super angelic powers because they are not the offspring of angels. They are men who serve the fame of their own names and were successful on the earth. Men like, maybe, evil Lamech before the flood. And perhaps giants like Goliath after the flood. You see, what Moses is doing is he's demythologizing the legendary mighty men of old. There are lots of stories feeding, feeding around people at that point of time that say, oh, these, these Nephilim are the descendants of angels and you know, they're, they're huge and powerful and you need to be afraid of them. Remember when Moses sent spies into the land and they reported back that the people there were giants, too big for us to fight? And as a result, that generation failed to enter the land? Now, as their children prepare to enter the land, they remember the legends of the mighty men around that time when, when some women bore offspring of angels. And Moses is telling them, yes, yes, there are some giants, but they're just giant men. Nothing more. That's the reason for the footnote. So, go burn your paperbacks about the Nephilim. What do we learn about God in all of this? Let's pick up in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts and of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. See, this is what we're meant to understand. And it's shocking. The wickedness of man. It's shocking. The wickedness of man is great and intense. Remember, there was a time, not too many chapters back, when God looked and saw 
that his creation was good. And with, with mankind, male and female, it was very good. And he was pleased and he delighted in its beauty. And now God looks just a, just a few chapters later and he sees evil and he's grieved in his heart. The extent of sin is great. God sees and knows that all mankind is shot through with sin. No one is without sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the intensity of sin, it's deep in our hearts. Every thought, every intention is only evil continually. What an indictment. Moses is describing our total depravity. Every one of us starts with every part of us under the control of an axis of evil that runs through our hearts. It's you, it's me. It controls not only our behavior, but our desires. It's not just sin that grieves God. It's me. I have grieved God. So God determines to blot out man and the animals with him. His judgment is not just on sin, but on sinners. And he's pointing to the flood when he says that. Now this may seem odd, but it's also profoundly comforting. Profoundly comforting that no evil deed goes unseen by God, isn't it? Because of who God is and because of the way God has created the world, there will be justice. There will be justice. That's comforting. That, that justice, that ultimate justice, is what allows us as believers to forgive sinners. Because the guilty will not go unpunished. But we forgive by, by releasing on a debt owed us, a sin debt owed us. We release upon that to God. That's how we forgive. The only way to understand wickedness and evil in the world is in relation to God creating us. He created us to be good, and we have become wicked. God has defined what is good and what is evil, and he has rooted it in his creation. Our generation cannot see its own evil, because our generation will not define what is good in relation to God. That has to happen first. And you see it in our, in our generation. Marriage, as given by God, is good. Any other form of marriage is evil that God will judge. That's what we just read in Genesis chapter 5. Mankind bearing the image of God, male and female, is good. Any other made-up notion of gender is evil that God will judge. Life is the gift of God. To intentionally kill another human being, especially innocent babies in the womb, is evil, and God will judge. Just because our generation denies the power and place of God does not make him go away. He's the God who is. Listen to Enoch. He has defined what is good, and our progress in inventing new evils is not progress in his eyes. 
We've become a generation of people who call what is evil good and what is good evil. And we should expect the judgment of God. I mean, think about how confused our world is. Think about how confused people are. It's because they can't define evil. They can't define evil because they can't define what's truly good. And they can't define what's truly good because they have rejected God who set the standard and gave it to us. The greatness and the intensity of mankind's sin, it grieved God to his heart. How do you read that? How do you read that? I read that God takes our sin personally. Hmm. God takes our sin personally. He's not aloof or uncaring or uninterested. He knows your name. And he knows your sin. And it grieves him. In Psalm 51, David acknowledges this very thing, that his sin is directed towards God when he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. You see, we would rather think of our sin as impersonal, wouldn't we? especially to God. The last thing we want to hear is that God is taking our sin personally. But he is. Our sin grieves the very heart of God. Every single one of them. And he must respond personally to our sin and, listen, to his own grief. He must respond to his own grief and sorrow over our sin and he must respond with judgment. We're not used to hearing God talked about this way. That he regretted, the ESV says, or that he was sorry, the NASB says. The old King James says, and it repented the Lord that he had made man upon the earth. Well, well, gosh, we're not used to hearing that word used of God. They're all the same Hebrew word. We're just not used to hearing it applied to God in this way. When God determines to judge man for sin, he's not changing his mind. God's not changed in that way. God is responding with perfect consistency. He always grieves sin, he always abhors sin, and he always judges sin. Perfectly consistent. Completely unchanged. The interesting thing about this word that's translated those very different ways is that it's also the same word translated relief in chapter 5, verse 29. Lamech named Noah to express hope that God would bring relief from sin. God is going to bring relief to the world from sin and relief to his own grief over sin, isn't he? He will. And Noah will be involved. Because grief includes not only sorrow, but anger. Anger. Not our kind of out-of-control anger. God's kind of completely controlled righteous indignation over sin. And just as, just as Abel's blood cried out from the ground for justice, God's own heart demands justice. God is bringing relief to the earth and comfort to his own grieving heart through judgment by the flood. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Noah was a sinner like us. But by the grace of God, Noah believed, and so he was counted righteous by God. We'll read about that next week in Hebrews. And, and so this is the, this is the lead-in to the next generation of Noah in the account of the flood. So you see, God's plan has not fallen apart. We wreck it, and we wreck it, and we wreck it. Adam and Eve wrecked the garden. Cain came and wrecked Abel and wrecked the ground, had to wander away from it. The, the seed of men, the seed of women, the, both Seth's line and Cain's line, become intermingled, sinful, sinful, sinful. Death, death, death reigns. No matter how much we wreck it, we, not, we just cannot ruin God's plan. We cannot ruin his purpose. Quite the opposite. God knew we would sin in this way and created us anyway. You know, there's a, there's a really helpful way for some of you to take that. God created you knowing you would sin against him and grieve his heart. He knew that. He knew that. Why? For his own glory. For his own glory. Why, did, why would the seed of the woman be Jesus and the Son of God and why would he have to go to the cross for the Father's glory? He went for the Father's glory. There's glory to God in the salvation of sinners and in the judgment of sinners. But we see God's grace and his promise of hope even in this darkness. God is able to bring comfort to the godly even in a wicked generation, brothers and sisters. By faith in Christ. We're to be encouraged by Noah. God will bring the justice of his judgment. There is an awful end to come for all wickedness. But the seed of the woman will be God himself in the person of Jesus Christ who will, in the spirit of the name of Noah, take up the toil and the pain and the sin and deal with it. How? Personally. A personal God is going to personally take care of your personal sin. How much more control could God be in of his creation than to personally deal with your sin? Glory to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your persistence. We want to thank you for your commitment. Lord, we want to thank you for your covenant faithfulness to us. The covenant that you made all the way back in the garden, the covenant of grace, knowing that we who could not obey your word would be saved by grace through the serpent crusher, your very own son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you for your love towards us. And we ask that you would build us up and strengthen us to be your holy people, to walk with God. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.